This past Wednesday marked a new point in the church calendar as the Lenten season began. Lent is a 40-day period beginning with Ash Wednesday that is observed as a season of repentance in anticipation of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection on Easter. Because of this, Lent is regarded as a season of special penitence and preparation by which we soberly consider our sin and purposely seek repentance and justification by faith in Jesus Christ. This Lenten season, as we follow the lectionary readings, we are going to consider the biblical covenants that God has made with his people throughout history. As we do this, I have two goals that I want to accomplish in my preaching during the next five Sundays. First, my primary goal is to present the historical and redemptive nature of God's covenants so that you might gain a greater understanding and appreciation for the Lord's redemptive work. Second, as we prepare our hearts for Easter, I want to draw your attention to the foreshadowing of Christ in each administration of God's redemptive activity. And it is important for us to see the way that each covenant points to Christ because it was his death and resurrection that accomplished our redemption. Therefore, my prayer is that you would be compelled and convinced to put your faith in Jesus. And thus, I have titled this sermon series for Lent, Christ in the Covenants. This morning, we will begin this new sermon series by considering two covenantal dispensations commonly referred to as the covenant of works or the covenant of creation and the covenant of grace or the covenant of redemption. And as we explore the covenant of works, we will consider humanity's fall into sin and subsequent death in judgment. And then in thinking through the covenant of grace, we will look at the work of God in redeeming a people for himself. So if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 19. I'm going to read that text and then pray a prayer of illumination. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. 
On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Bow your head with me. Heavenly Father, I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would help us to rightly know your word this very morning. Impart to us wisdom, knowledge, and understanding, so that we might live to the praise and honor of your glorious grace. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So let's begin by considering the covenant of works. In our Old Testament lesson that Graham read, we engaged with some of the significant language that is associated with the covenant of works. We heard the famous prohibition that God presented to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, of which they were told not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And with that, we also listen to the account of their subsequent disobedience in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Theologians refer to this series of events as Adam's test or mankind's test. And this test should be understood as just one event in the overarching dispensation of the covenant of works. In other words, God's prohibition and Adam's disobedience do not comprise the totality or the wholeness of the covenant of works, but rather they are part of a single event that took place during a far more encompassing administration. As we explore the covenant of works, I want to draw your attention to the structure of the covenant itself and consider its three provisions, wedding, work, and worship. And then we will look at God's prohibition and consider the effect of Adam's disobedience. So number one, weddings. Look at Genesis chapter one, verses 27 through 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. This is the first provision of God's covenant with man. Man is to be married, and he is to be fruitful in multiplying according to his kind. This requirement is further expressed in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 and verse 24. 
Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. and They shall become one flesh. This provision of marriage is both a requirement and a blessing. This is God's prescribed means to accomplish the furthering and flourishing of humanity through the fruit of marriage. And this is an important truth to note. Marriage is not the invention of culture, but rather the outworking of God's infinite wisdom. And according to his genius, he designed marriage to be between one man and one woman with the intention and purpose of procreating. With that being said, let me just pause and express another parenthetical observation. In the same way that marriage is not the invention of culture, gender is not a cultural construct either. Here in the text, we are told that God determined and created two genders, male and female. And he created them as compatible beings for procreation. Furthermore, the grammatical distinction between male and female in Genesis 1.27 is rooted in biological assignment that is connected to reproductive organs. And this is proven later in Genesis when circumcision is introduced into the narrative. In chapter 17, the same word is used for male as is used in chapter 1. In both contexts, it is employed to distinguish between men and women, male and female. And in Genesis chapter 17, there is no gender confusion or dysphoria about who will receive the sign of circumcision. The text obviously states sons receive the sign because they have reproductive organs that correspond to being male. That's my parenthetical thought. With that being said, the point that I want to emphasize here as it relates to the covenant of works is this. The provision of marriage in the covenant of works is in fact God's design to accomplish the furthering and flourishing of humanity. That's the first provision, wedding. Consider provision number two work. Draw your attention again to Genesis one twenty-eight. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the second provision of the covenant of works. Male and female are to occupy the vocation of rulers, exercising dominion over the created order. This is further explained again in Genesis chapter 2. In verse 15, we read, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Without question, part and parcel to man's work of regency is provision and protection for his family. 
The Hebrew word that is translated into English as work in verse 15 is the word avad, which means to labor. And in an agrarian context, as with the Garden of Eden, this word means to labor for produce or harvest. Thus, man's responsibility, according to God's design in the covenant of works, is to provide. Second, the Hebrew word that is translated into English as keep in verse 15 is the word shamar, which means to guard or protect. Along with provision, man's responsibility in the covenant of works, according to God's creative genius, is to protect. And it should be noted that the work of the man, in conjunction with the work of the woman in marriage and childbearing and childrearing, is God's design for human flourishing. Work, like marriage, is God's design for the advancement of humanity. According to the created order, women and children flourish when they have a husband and a father who provides and protects for them. Furthermore, for both men and women, work is glorious. It's an endeavor that fills, subdues, and governs the earth for the glory of God and the good of humanity. So wedding and work comprise the first two provisions. Provision number three is worship. Look at Genesis chapter two, verses one through three. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. The marking of the seventh day as holy is an inference to man's responsibility in worship. And we learn about this in more detail in Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. This is the third provision. Male and female are to Sabbath as worship unto creator God. Again, the Pentateuch gives further detail and explains that this worship is an act of remembering the work of God. This kind of Sabbath worship is expressed in Psalm 77 and Psalm 143, which say, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. This remembering as worship is a pattern of liturgy that was not only a provision in the covenant of works, but it continues to this day. Israel was told not only to remember the creation account, but also to remember their divine deliverance from Egypt. Likewise, our Lord instructed you and I not only to remember his creative work of old, but also he has commanded us to remember his work of redemption, which brings about new creation. And thus, when we gather on the Lord's Day, we remember and we worship through word and sacrament. These are the three provisions 
of the covenant of works. Wedding, work, and worship. And thus, in the first administration, man's responsibility was to fulfill these commands. With that being established, let's look at God's prohibition and Adam's disobedience. In addition to the positive commands, God also gave man a negative prohibition, which is recorded in Genesis 2, 16 through 17, as we heard earlier. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Common to every covenant are terms. And custom to every biblical covenant that God makes with his people are terms that invoke blessing and cursing. And we will see this develop in more detail throughout this current sermon series. In the covenant of works, man's obedience to the provisions of wedding, work, and worship would bring about blessing, specifically life and the flourishing of life, procreation. Likewise, man's disobedience to the prohibition would bring about a curse, namely death. And as I said earlier, it is widely understood that the prohibition is a test for Adam, one which will display the universal and transcendent authority of the Creator's divine word. Now, up until this point, I have been using the term covenant of works without qualification, which for some of you, this may communicate the idea that Adam was to keep the law of God by his moral fortitude and personal vigor. In other words, you might be thinking, by his good works, Adam would uphold the provision and terms of God's covenant and thus merit God's favor. Throughout Protestant church history, many have come to this same conclusion. However, this assumption is in error. It was not Adam's works that would be meritous. Instead, it was his faith that would bring about blessing. Therefore, in an attempt to clear things up, some Bible teachers and theologians refer to this dispensation, the covenant of works, as the covenant of creation, which I think is a helpful title as it refers to the historical context of the covenant and does not open the door for any interpretation of works-based salvation. But with that being said, the term covenant of works was coined by the Westminster Confession of Faith in speaking about this first covenant administration. And because the Westminster Confession is the doctrinal standard here at All Saints Church, I prefer to keep with the title covenant of works as to be consistent with our confession of faith. However, I do so with an important explanation. I would like to clarify that the covenant of works was not meritous, and I would also deny that any covenant cannot be kept without faith. Good works, even in this covenant, 
were a direct result of faith. As the author of Hebrews explains, it is impossible to please God without faith. Likewise, in his, in his epistle, the apostle James stated, faith without works is dead. And as it relates to the covenant of works, I would state the inverse. Works without faith are dead. So then, Adam lacked faith and disobeyed God's prohibition, resulting in a curse that was placed on himself and his posterity as he was a federal head representing the entire human race. Simply stated, the transgression of God's covenant by Adam brought the curse of death on all humanity. But in his mercy, God established a second covenant dispensation known as the covenant of grace and often referred to as the covenant of redemption, as this was God's way of redeeming Adam and his posterity. So that is the covenant of works. Now let's consider the covenant of grace. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, God addresses the serpent, the woman, and the man, concerning their personal participation in the breaking of the prohibition. It is important to note that in the covenant of grace, God does not do away with the covenant of works wholesale. So wedding, work, and worship are not put to the side. Instead, they are brought forward in greater detail. Because of the curse of sin, Man will have a harder time fulfilling his duties as they relate to the provisions of wedding, work, and worship. But again, these things are not nullified. Furthermore, the covenant of grace offers redemption through the promise of the proto-evangelium, the first declaration in Scripture that a Savior will come and crush the head of the serpent. Therefore, as we think about the covenant of grace, we should understand it as a promise of man's redemption in which he will be restored. As we look at the covenant of grace, I want to draw your attention to three things. God's declaration to Satan, his word to Eve, and his word to Adam. So let's begin with God's word to Satan. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Satan deceived Eve by convincing her to question God's transcendent and authoritative word. In short, he enticed her to consider herself equal in authority to God. This lie of Satan, this deception, is something that he continues to promulgate among mankind. 
all throughout history, the destruction of individuals and civilizations have begun with the premise that God's word is neither true nor authoritative. There is much we could say about the curse on the serpent, but the main thing we need to focus on and realize is that the curse goes beyond the serpent to Satan himself. Oh, Palmer Robertson, commenting on these words to Satan, explains by saying, only as the serpent represents Satan does its humiliation posture possess real significance. That is to say, the curse of humiliation that is placed on the serpent is really fulfilled in the humiliation of Satan, which is explained in verse 15. God tells Satan that there will be enmity between his seed and the woman's seed, which will ultimately end in his own destruction. Throughout redemptive history, there exists a very visible thread. The war between good and evil. The conflict between righteous and unrighteous. In fact, in the next chapter, in Genesis chapter 4, this conflict will ensue as Cain will murder his brother Abel. The narrative of Genesis will then establish two posterities. The descendants of Seth, the righteous, and the offspring of Cain, the evil. And the distinguishing mark between these two ancestral lines will be faith. The righteous, Seth's seed, will live by faith while the evil, Cain's seed, will live in disobedience and ill regard for the transcendent word of God. This is further realized by St. John's words when he says in his epistle, Cain was of the evil one. Likewise, John the Baptist said that his adversaries generated, or they were a generation of serpents. Furthermore, Jesus explicitly stated that his enemies were of their father, the devil, and they were murderers just like him. The point that I want to emphasize here in God's word to Satan in the context of the covenant of grace is this. Satan received a curse which ultimately promised blessing to the seed of the woman. From Adam's race would come one who would destroy the ancient viper. And this formula of blessing and cursing, again, constitutes the terms of the covenant of grace. As God promised to save the seed of the woman from Satan, he is establishing covenantal terms, blessing and cursing. That is the word to Satan. Now let's consider God's word to the woman. Draw your attention to Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Through the words of blessing and cursing, the terms of the covenant are further communicated to Eve. The woman is to receive the blessing of children, of whom will one day destroy Satan. 
both the presence of children in the immediate face of death and the destruction of Satan himself are significant blessings to the woman. However, the woman will also receive the curse of multiplied pain in childbirth. Her joy will be paralleled by the curse of intensified physical pain. With that, the curse will also affect her relationship toward her husband. In this case, the joy of marriage will be paralleled by a curse in which the longing of the woman will be to regulate, control, and govern her husband. You can see the obvious meaning of the marital curse by comparing Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, and Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. So what I mean by that is this. If, if, if initially, if those words make you feel uncomfortable, the, that the woman receives a curse in which she will desire to regulate, control, and govern her husband, I'm not inserting that here into the text. That's what I'm drawing from the text, and I want you to see that between these two passages. The verb desire and rule are exactly the same in both instances. So in Genesis 3.16 and Genesis 4.7, the verbs are exactly the same. The difference between these two verses are the subjects. In chapter 3, the woman desires the man, but he will rule over her. In chapter 4, sin's desire is for Cain, but he is to rule over it. With that being said, it is important to note that sin did not introduce hierarchy into the created order. God created hierarchy. Instead, sin brought about the desire to overthrow and usurp the created order that God had established. Therefore, the common phrase of our day, smash the patriarchy, is an expression of this curse in which wives seek to regulate, control, and govern their husbands. It should be well understood that raging against God's created order is a futile task. Thus, in all of feminism's attempts to control man or usurp the hierarchy that God has created into the very fabric of creation, husbands will still rule over the women. That's point number two, God's word to the woman. Let's consider God's word to the man, point number three. Look at Genesis chapter three, verses 17 through 19. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I command you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. Adam too receives blessing and curses. The blessing is seen in the fact that in the covenant of grace, God provides sustenance for maintaining life through work and food in the face of death. 
The first curse is found in the toil of man's work. He will experience pain as he no longer will tend the ripened garden of Eden, but instead labor in a field, sowing and reaping as a means to provide for his family. Like the woman, man will experience both joy of the blessing and pain in the curse. It is important to understand that sin did not introduce work into the created order. As we've already noted, work was part of God's creative plan for mankind, designed for his flourishing. Instead, sin brought toil and strife into man's relationship with his work. Again, in the covenant of grace, he experiences the joy of provision and alongside this curse. The second curse is found in death itself. Adam is presented with these words. From dust you are, and to dust you shall return. This is a most dismal consequence. But in this, God's word remained true. What he said would happen did, in fact, come about. And the idea that I want to stress from these last two points, God's word to the woman and his word to the man, is this. The creation requirements of wedding, work, and worship are still present here in the covenant of grace. God did not dissolve his created order for men and women. Furthermore, these three provisions are to be faithfully pursued as men and women fulfill their office as rulers over the creation. What has changed is that sin has entered the, into the equation bringing with it curses and pain and turmoil and conflict. But God in his grace provides the blessings of the covenant of grace in the face of the curses. And these blessings provide hope that sin and its effects on childbearing, marriage, work, and even life itself will be reversed. This hope is found in two instances. First, the promise of an heir that would crush the head of the serpent. This is a point of hope. Where Adam failed in his responsibility to provide Shamar to be the guardian of the garden, and in his failure to protect Eve from the serpent, hope is given that an heir will come and faithfully crush the head of the serpent as Adam should have done. And second, hope is found in the grace of God as atonement was made for the sin of Adam and Eve in verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Through the sacrifice of an animal, the atoning work of redemption was foreshadowed and illustrated for Adam and Eve. While they may not have fully understood the implications of the sacrifice, 
They did, however, experience the grace of God as he literally covered their guilt and shame with animal skin. In closing, I want to demonstrate how all of what we just explored about the covenant of works and the covenant of grace should prepare our hearts for Easter. As you and I interact with the world we live in and consider the death and disease that surrounds us, we should be mindful of Adam's disobedience and sin's curse. When you and I celebrate the life of newborn babies and mourn the loss of young and old alike, we should take into account the morbid effects of sin. As we contemplate the war and hostility that takes place across the globe, we should think about the cosmic battle between good and evil, between the seed of the woman and the seed of Satan. In all that we see wrong with the world, you and I need to recognize the effects of sin. And more importantly, you and I need to realize our own contribution to the wickedness of mankind. What's wrong out there is ultimately a reflection of what's wrong in here. When we as men are tempted to abdicate our roles of providing and protecting, we should recall Adam's failure to crush the head of the serpent. Women, as you are tempted to forsake your marriage vows through infidelity or put off the work of childbearing and child rearing, you should thoughtfully consider the way in which Eve was deceived, thinking herself to be equal with God. When you and I experience marital strife, we should be reminded of the root cause that gives birth to our conflict. As we view marriages in our culture and in our circles of social life and family that are struggling, you and I should remember the root cause there. Children, as you are tempted to disobey your parents, to put off their authority, to forsake the word of your father and mother, you should soberly consider Satan's goal in harming you, his purpose in bringing about your destruction. And in all of this, we should see our own need for a savior. One who will redeem us and justify us through his conquering of sin, Satan, and death. Jesus was born of a woman and entered the fray of good versus evil. In his battle against wickedness, his heel was bruised on the cross. But he crossed the serpent's head by the power of his atoning sacrifice and subsequent resurrection. This Lenten season, I pray that you understand the true meaning of these words. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men.
For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you bow your head with me as we bring our prayers and petitions to the Father? Lord, we come to you this morning recognizing your grace. That even in the face of our father Adam's disobedience, in his breaking of the prohibition, you have extended grace to us. You have promised a reversing of what sin has brought. Father, we pray that you would help us to believe in that reality, to trust in the hope of a coming salvation, in the salvation that has come in Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that we would also look to the covenant of works and see the covenant of creation, that you have designed humanity for wedding, work, and worship. I pray, Father, that your people here at All Saints Church would pick up those responsibilities and faithfully put their hand to work in those areas. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers.